Welcome to the Long Thread Podcast about spinning, stitching, and weaving by hand. The podcast is presented by Long Thread Media, publishers of Handwoven, Piecework, Spinoff, and Little Looms magazines. Find us online at longthreadmedia.com. This episode is sponsored by Trainway Silks. You'll find the largest variety of silk spinning fibers, silk yarn, and silk threads and ribbons at trainwaysilks.com. Choose from a rainbow of hand-dyed colors. Love natural? Their array of wild silk and silk blends provide choices beyond white. Trainway Silks, where superior quality and customer service are guaranteed. I'm your host, Longthread Media co-founder, Anne Marrow. Stephanie Gausted has been a fiber artist and teacher and a member of the vibrant spinning and weaving community in the Northern California area for decades. Her interests are wide ranging, though she's hard pressed to decide which of them is her favorite. We spoke about her career, her partnerships, friendships, and the joy that she finds working with fiber, yarn, and fabric. When I first asked you if you would talk to me, you, you said, well, what are we going to talk about? How do I live with all those wheels? Yeah. How many wheels are we talking? Oh, my gosh. Uncounted. I think I have 19. Wow. And they're of all different sizes, styles, etc. And they're just about in every room except the restrooms. And what are the sources of all of them? Are they all... Aldens? Yeah. A lot of them are. And so, some of them are not. Like, I have a number of Ashfords and motor spinners that are not Aldens. You know, an Eel and a Hanson. And, you know, I won't keep a tool unless it's useful. So that kind of lit- <laughs> exposes my mania with this craft. <laughs> They all have to be useful. How often do they all have to be used to earn their keep? Well, that's, it's by project is the way I consider it. So if I've used them for a project, they're a keeper. If I haven't, they're out. I have several wheels for spinning cotton and uh, some that are good generic wheels. Some I hang on to because they're what everybody else has, so I can get a sense for how to tell them how to get adjustments on that wheel. That is something about teachers, that you have to be able to troubleshoot on the fly. Exactly. Which is kind of fun. I feel like I'm putting on the deerstalker, you know. (laughs) Just as you need a deerstalker cap so you don't get the deer in the headlights look. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) Not too often anyway. Yeah. Are you counting charkas in that count? Yeah, I am. And you've been a cotton spinner even when most people weren't really that interested in it. Yeah. I found myself living in the southern San Joaquin Valley. And at that time, it was one of the prime growing areas in the United States for cotton. And my husband was working at the USDA Cotton Research Station. So I had plenty of resource on technical stuff. So I said, okay, get it in gear, jump on that horse, and ride it as fast as you can. So it was great. Learned a lot about cotton and uh, still find it one of my favorite fibers to spin, even though I've moved on to other fibers. The cotton that was happening at the research station was probably for mass-scale agricultural purposes, right? It was for the textile industry, which no longer exists in the United States, or exists at such a much lower level. 
the variety was a kala. How did you learn how to spin the cotton as a hand spinner? Well, I jumped right in and treated it as wool. So I learned all the stuff that you're not supposed to do. <laughs> like clamp down on it, like put it in a wad and try and spin out of the wad because cotton has some resilience, but it doesn't have the resilience of wool. So once you press a shape into it, it's forever that shape until you can mechanically open it up. And the problem is your fingers are not adept enough to open it without compressing it. So you have to open it up by carding or a technique known as willowing. Which is kind of beating it with sticks, right? It, yeah, it looks very much like beating it with sticks. And the way I've taught myself to do it, it's I'm not pressing down at the downstroke. The active stroke is the lift. So it's opening it up and making it more lofty and more Importantly, it's not aligning the fibers. It's making them random so that I can spin it woolen. Cotton does very beautiful stuff when it's spun in the woolen domain with random arrangement and double drafting. Well, one of the preparations I see sometimes as a hand spinner is, is top, right? As cotton top. That's combed. I would think I would avoid that, right? I would say don't take it as your first choice. If you've never spun cotton, you may say, okay, I'll take that, and then I'll put it in my reserve for when I'm a better spinner because it's easily disarranged, and it's absolutely beautiful prep that's quite rare. Hmm. So good to get it when you can get it but save it for when you've already made friends and know what to expect from the fiber. And I suppose I can be the mechanical intervention with my cotton cards. You can hand card it. And that's also, carding is not just a happenstance, it's a skill unto itself, like penmanship or calligraphy. It's at that level. In other words, you can do a lot with it. And, uh, with cotton, you're trying to do the very opposite of what you want with wool. So your natural instincts of handling those cards are a little against you. I was going to ask, so, so you card differently for wool as well as spinning differently than for wool? Yeah. You try and not put a whole lot of fiber on the card, and you try and not have to make too many wipes with the cards. So if you load them, it just, you know, the game is lost. And then transfer frequently and roll it into a very fluffy Rolex. Not a tight poonie. No. Huh. You can, if you do, if you do the light fluffy Rolex, that will teach you how to card for poonies. You can roll it into a Rolex so you lay the, bat down or the lap that you've just created down and then roll it around a knitting needle, a double pointed knitting needle. The problem is punies are dense. They involve a huge amount of fiber, the ones that you can buy. I have a tendency to like to work with fiber that is maybe more fragile, but also more controllable. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Do you 
do most of your spinning for weaving or do you do it equally for knitting? I know that you've actually taught knob bending. Yeah, yeah. It's for the product. You know, all of this comes from what do I want as an end product. I have a prize and I want to follow everything I can do to make that prize the most successful that I can. And so what kinds of things do you typically want to make? Or to, to have when you... To have. Yeah. Right. I'm pretty garment-oriented. So basically for woven clothing. But I also knit. I knit socks, you know, up the wazoo. And scarves and shawls. So it's kind of all over the place. And null bending is really wonderful, too. So are you... So I also do historic textile replica. Oh, really? Yeah. Do you do it as part of a performance or enactment, or is it just sort of for the construction? And I like to put my mind into a position of somebody 20,000 years ago or 10,000 years ago or 5,000 years ago and just see what it might have been like as a spinner. What would they have used? What would they have accomplished? What would the yarn be like? See, the problem is I've just discovered the cotton fiber goes away in the soil in less than a year, hmm. which means that all of our existent samples are very dear, for one thing. Secondly, they don't represent what was actually on hand at the time. I guess I'm in love with archaeology. <laughs> uh, so, you know, how do you know what was in even the American Southwest, because so many textiles were gone in a very short period of time. That also reflects what would have been made because the local residents would have been well aware of the fact. So they were constantly in the textile business, making it for them and their families. I spoke with Louis Garcia, um, I think last year or maybe the year before, who works with the Perishables archaeology projects in, in New Mexico and Arizona. And a lot of what they find are things like baskets and sandals. But he works on recreating cotton pieces with spraying and weaving. And, and we're talking about archaeology. One of the things I notice is that you tend to use a lot of tools that are maybe not you know 10,000 years old, but you use a lot of tools that are 100 years old. Yeah. So... Tell me about your favorites. Favorite tools? Yeah, because you use things like even squirrel cage reels are not as common now as they used to be. Oh, and yeah. So there's there's all of these sorts of tools that I think contemporary fiber artists might not recognize as being part of their heritage, but that are actually part of your practice. Oh, I would say that, and this is inflammable, I probably married my man because of the tools he made. And he, I recognized, he recognized, here's someone who likes to handle a great deal of yarn. And yarn handling gear is critical. So the Squirrel Cage Swift allows you to actually approach a project, a larger project, than just enough for a pair of socks. Approach that project with sanity. You know, this is not something that you're so focused on that nothing else happens in your life? Or can you actually finish spinning a bobbinsworth, run upstairs, 
put it on the clock reel, which has a stroke counter, so it knows how many rotations it is, and you can get a yardage on it right there. Drop it on the scale and get a grist size right there, yards per pound. And you've got, and write it down in a book. Don't attempt to remember it. (laughs) (laughs) That level of production, to me, is right where I want to live. Because I don't, time is so valuable. I enjoyed the explorative part of my experience in the fiber world, and then immediately wanted to duplicate. How do I get more than one skein this size? And then how do I get a pound of this size? And then, oh, I found this fleece over here. How do I, you know? And it just sort of blossomed as a self-taught, you know, exploration of falling in love with yarn. So you mentioned you found your man. That's that's Alden Amos. Yes. Who I think is one of those folks in the fiber world that kind of can go by one name. Yep. Amos. <laughs> or, Ald- or Alden. Or Alden. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 And the two of you worked together. We did. We did. From the get-go. Was he as much of a spinner as you are, or was he really more interested in the mechanical aspects of it? All of it. Uh, His mind was like a university instead of a room. So he enjoyed spinning enormously. He also enjoyed working in the woodshop and getting conversant and excellent with every single tool in the woodshop. And there was nothing in the woodshop that wasn't needed or used. So what can I say? Brilliant man. I heard him say once that he had made his first spinning wheel for somebody else, but that 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 really took off for him that, you know, he, he made it and it wasn't very good, but he figured out how to (laughs) to make better ones. Well, I'll tell you a story about him when he was in the army and he did serve. He was a helicopter repairman. He worked on helicopters as a mechanic. I don't think he flew them, but that gives you an idea of rotational forces and their, you know, responsibility. So, and I think he saw that in spinning and he understood every single point of contact, you know, with a bearing surface and what was rotating and what it needed. And that stimulated him and kept going. And you guys were part of a, I want to say a fiber renaissance, but a um a hub of spinning and weaving and traditional fiber exploration in the Northern California area. Yeah, so true. And it rotated around Betty and Bernie Hotchberg. That was a couple that had fled from the New York scene and established a kind of oasis in Santa Cruz. And their house was always open to the spinners even though it was a little postage stamp size Santa Cruz beach house. Uh, Betty and Bernie took their skills and critical thinking and ability to draw to its supreme with her books that she produced, which are beautiful pieces, full of excellent information. I had actually, until you just mentioned it, never heard of Bernie. I'd heard of Betty, of course, because of her books. Right. And because Susan Druding mentioned that She'd have to hide the fiber so that Betty wouldn't buy it all. (laughs) I can believe it. (laughs) I can believe it. Bernie did a lot of weaving. 
So he didn't teach spinning, but he did produce a lot of rugs, and a lot of their income was on rugs. Hmm. How did you come to develop that sort of passion for fiber? What drew you not only to that place, but to that, I guess you'd say, calling? I think it was when I found a treadle sewing machine for $5 at the Salvation Army when I was eight years old. And uh, I just was totally fascinated by it. My mom had one of these expensive, thoroughly outfitted sewing machine that every time you looked at it, it jammed the needle thread into the bobbin case. And, you know, that was not appealing, not in the least. But I looked at this machine and I could understand it from head to toe and take care of anything that went wrong. And I still have the machine. Wow. So that took me down the path of sewing and textiles. But then instead of going into something like, you know, working with a lot of commercial fabrics, you decided to take it a step back. Well, I, it, it could be just a, a portion of the desire to control. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when I, Alden opened up the world to me when he said, you can have any yarn you can envision and you can have any fabric that you want to spend time doing. And that just hit me like a cannonball. And I was, oh, my word. I want to be there. I want it all. <laughs> <laughs> then, I, you know, you, reality dawns. And 40 years later, you go, I haven't made them all yet. Right. I was going to say, so what is the most kind of extreme fabric that you've made? You know, thinnest or thickest or hardest or... or... Oh, that's a good question. The most extreme... I did a reproduction piece for a museum that was of extremely fine yarn. And that was because I wanted it to be excellent. That was the most nail-biting of the lot. I think you've taught classes in spinning for reproduction as well. I have. I have. Which is uh, kind of an eye-opener in the sense that a lot of the materials that were available then are no longer available that, uh, in other words, we really don't know what kind of cotton they used. Mm. You're the first person that I had ever heard of the Deccan muslins from. Dhaka muslins. Dhaka muslins. Oh, yeah. And they are actually starting to try to revive those. Well, they'll, good luck. They have to find, right, find and breed the right cotton. Exactly. And then find people that can spin on a supported spindle that fine thread. So for people who might not be familiar with them, the Dhaka muslins are just incredibly sheer, fine, cotton woven cloth that was created in part of India. Right. Yeah. From Dhaka, mm -hmm. which is a port city. I don't have the, the numbers in my head for them, but they were of such supreme fineness that the cloth was very nearly invisible. And of course, they were presentation pieces to show the giver that they had the power to give away such a treasure and the receiver to be respectful of that effort and the power of the giver. So it was a form of gold. And I, I think you told me that there was someone who was, who was wearing a piece made out of oh, that muslin. Oh, yes, that muslin, and was told by her parents, 
get out of the room. You are not to come here until you're dressed. <laughs> and she said, I am. And she began to pull back the layers of her garment and say, I have one, two, three, four layers of garment on. That's amazing. That sort of fineness. I think there's an idea that what people used to do, we can't do anymore. And I think as spinners, you could learn the skills. We yeah. People can still make these motions. But as you said, the materials aren't always available. And now I've come to think about it as like a musician. There are spinners who are very much like musicians. They have taken an interest and pursued a path from childhood and therefore have levels of skill that are beyond the average man because they've worked at it for so long and they've become so aware and familiar with all the things that go into making that sound or that yarn. We've talked about cotton, but you've been interested in bast fiber for mm -hmm. quite a while as well. And that's mm -hmm. something that I think a lot of spinners maybe are coming back to, but wasn't part of the general maybe curriculum for quite a while. Right. Partially because it's hard to obtain. You know, it's, it's not a fiber that is readily available, readily grown at, at vast quantities. Like during the Second World War, hemp was grown all over the place in the United States to serve the army because that fiber does, it resists destruction in, uh, by biologic attack. And it's extremely strong. So it was grown in Kentucky and <laughs> the Midwest, right and left. It's also not that easy to process, right? It's fairly labor intensive. Yes, right. You can't just pick it and get the seed out of it and, you know, throw it on the carpet and start pounding on it or whatever. You have to work to get it because it exists, the fiber exists under the skin of the plant. And beneath it is a core that supports the whole plant. And when you have, a, like in hemp, a stalk that is 10 feet tall, you know that core is plenty woody. It's got to have a lot of strength to attain that height. So you've got something that's delicate, pasted to the surface of something <laughs> that will support 10 feet height. You know, so that's, it's a little tricky how to get it off that's in something that you can use in excess. So I know you've said that you are really into it for, I think you said you were a textile junkie. You're, you're in it for the thing you can make. But if there's a time when you say, I'm just going to sit down and work on something for the sheer pleasure of it, what would that be? <laughs> it would probably be some delicious colored sliver that is very willing that doesn't take a whole lot of attention or nursing and uh, do the long draw, which is a draft against twist form of drafting. And you just feel like you get your shoulders and arms going and it's like a good walk through the woods. Are you talking cotton or are you talking wool? Pick a fiber. <laughs> It's no, really, it, it, it's more on the preparation. How good is the preparation? That's so interesting because you mentioned a sliver and a long draw, and that could be either. Yeah, yeah. Well, long draw, 
By that, I mean the old-fashioned war version of long draw, which is draft against twist, rather mm -hmm. than double extension. Mm -hmm. There's kind of a discussion in our current group as to what it means. And language being alive, it's what people want it to mean. So when you say double extension, you mean sometimes they call that double drafting where you right. draft it out and then you add another right. layer of twist. You put a little bit of twist at one end of the fiber staple and a little bit of twist at the other end of the fiber beyond just a bit, and then allow you to extend and draw that by letting the twist in from the wheel side hand. And that's something that you see in different cultures and different fibers around the world. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I would say probably as a result of being largely spindle culture. Mm. Do you mostly work on wheels or spindles? <laughs> What's at hand? <laughs> <laughs> you know, both of them have their real advantages. Spindles are so portable, you can take them anywhere. And if you're sitting someplace where you have to sit in an office and wait for somebody to come out the door, a spindle is just the ticket. It means that you can spin in all kinds of circumstances. Traveling. Mm -hmm. um, when it's sunny outside and it's been a cold winter. So I have areas set up in my house where I have a wheel set up so that I can land in her mm -hmm. and sit and spin. I have spinning wheels in just about every room in the house. Or spinning devices. Mm. When you spin, do you... I tend to... I tend to watch TV, but do you listen to music or, or anything? Or, or is it just that you are, that's what you're doing? Oh, 100% attention. Uh, I try not to pick stuff that I have to have 100% attention. Because that means something is going on that I have to put 100% attention on it. Once I've figured out what the staple length is, what the characteristics are of the draft, and I've decided what size I want to have, I want to put it on autopilot and get into that almost meditative zone. And the zone is, welcomes music. It also welcomes, let's say, a movie that I'm really familiar with and quite in love with. So I will, you know, put that on and more listen to it than I actually watch it. Watch the good parts. Mm -hmm. Sometimes stop the wheel and watch the good parts longer. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's, the word that comes to mind is escape, but that's not escape from something. It's escape to something. Mm -hmm. So when Alden said you can make any kind of fabric or any kind of yarn you can dream of, I assume he sort of meant one can. can do you think that at this point you can make any kind of fabric that you want? Oh, no, I know my limitations. And I know that the more with each passing day, how excellent and uh, diverse the textile culture is. So no, I can't do anything that I can think of or is was done. No. That level of mastery and understanding, I think they call it the Dunning-Kruger effect, where when you just start off, you think you can do anything. And then yeah. when you learn a little bit, you realize yeah. that you, <laughs> right. you actually have a much lower estimation of your abilities right. when you know how much right. there is. You have to understand that Alden was in the army and responsible for a lot of men. And so what he would tell them was, be excellent to yourself. And so he'd put out mighty challenges. 
And so when he said, anything that you can think of or want, you know, you can do it. He's encouraging you to become excellent, to be the best you can. And I think along with that comes responsibility and knowledge. So responsibility of do you really want to uh, eliminate something from the surface of the earth because you want it? Or are you capable right now, as you finally have all the knowledge and your sensors are going away, like your eyes, can you see what you could see when you were 20? Mm. No. But that's okay. You can still do it. But you also have the dexterity and the experience in your hands that you might not have had when you were 20. Oh, yes, exactly. You spent all this time to get there. Mm -hmm. You know, look at how many excellent musicians of advanced age are still performing. So in a way, I want to ask you about Alden. You know, the two of you were such a team, and yet you are an accomplished textile artisan in your own right. And maybe it's having double beginning of the alphabet, AA, that Alden Amos tends to sort of be, the first, the, top. <laughs> be the first thing you mentioned. But the kind of partnership that you guys had, how do you think that the two of you complemented each other? <laughs> what comes to mind is very well. Um, <laughs> How do we compliment one another? He was the mechanic. He understood the mechanics of everything almost intuitively. Brilliant engineer. I was the artist who had gone to school for art and understood color and, and all line and drape and all that stuff, which he understood, but not as well. It wasn't as intuitive for him as it was for me. So I think that, you know, sort of art and science right there. I didn't realize you'd gone to school for art. What, what sort of, was it, you know, visual art or fiber art? Fine art. And uh, I found myself doing some of my final fine art projects, which were supposed to be for the sculpture lab. My instructor was an artist at UC Irvine at that time. They wanted to hire doers rather than instructors. So they got some contemporary fine artists to teach the class. And so uh, this sculpture class instructor flipped on the lights in the wood lab and said, okay, here's all the wood equipment. Don't cut any fingers off and walked out. Oh my God. Yeah. You know, and I went, wait a minute. I know those got those types of machines and I don't, I don't know how to use, I don't even know how to turn them on, much less use them. And so when I had to produce a piece of work for him to judge, I went to my sewing machine and did a stuffed grandmother using my body as pattern work for how to build the grandmother shapes, put it together. <laughs> and I guess I was kind of cruel because I um, sculpted her face off of my face and gave her really scary eyes. <laughs> <laughs> which wasn't intentional, but it worked out. And I <laughs> stuck her in the passenger seat of my Volkswagen. <laughs> and uh, there she was sitting with her head leaning over like she was dead. <laughs> <laughs> and I told the instructor, my piece is in the car in the front seat. <laughs> and then got some really awful joy out of watching him jump. <laughs> 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 
Uh, uh, and then I never took another sculpture class. <laughs> I also began to realize that I wasn't really involved in the current art scene. Hmm. So I had to look another direction. But for somebody who, who now has taught thousands of people, knowing how to be a doer and a teacher at the same time is clearly something that you practice. Yeah, right. Because teaching has performance aspects, hmm. heavy performance aspects. One of my early neighbors was a drama teacher. And I remember as a child her saying, you must be seen, you must be heard. And all the rest of it, you know, is, you can, is up to chance. But if you don't solve those two, you're not doing your job. That's just the opposite of what I remember hearing when I was a kid, that children should be seen and not heard. I know. That's, I think, what stuck with me, you know, because my, my family was very much that kind of Midwestern mentality. Mm -hmm. And uh, it made sense to me mm -hmm. and stuck. And I think you have to develop ways of inserting what you want to say to somebody in a way that they will remember. Mm-hmm. Or you can just jabber, and that's fine, too. <laughs> but if you want to get the point across, you have to use just simple stuff. But converting something that you have learned through exploration into something that you can transmit to somebody else intentionally takes a lot of development. It takes a lot of thought, mm -hmm. yeah. And I think you have to be real. Mm. You know, so if you are, if you see a funny side to life, then that's the way you should develop it. If you are very serious and technical, then that's the way you should develop it and go from a completely technical point of view. Yahoo! And you'll get all the technicians taking your class. Mm -hmm. But a lot of your students probably you know, want to learn the skills but don't necessarily want to approach textiles in the same way. way. Right, right. And so I try to accommodate. I'm, I'm very well aware that no one mm -hmm. is, not everyone is as crazy as I am. <laughs> well, or committed, dedicated. Focused. Focused, yep. Yeah. Yeah, I, I appreciate that mm -hmm. totally. Because I have sat at the time where I just needed warm arms around me mm -hmm. to sit and do something comfortable and maybe meditate. Mm -hmm. And I see that as a big part of the beauty of this craft. There is literal warmth and touch and embrace. Right, right. But you certainly learned your way about around a workshop. I did, I did, which is still kind of scary. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it should be. That's true, a kind of a healthy respect. Right. I told you know, you really can't take a finger off in a spinning wheel. <laughs> you could, You'd have some, to work at it, I guess. There are really some I've seen where really you could inspired. probably bruise one. <laughs> yeah. But it's not as life-threatening mm -hmm. as the woodshop. Did you ever get into making tools yourself? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I helped Alden make a lot of the charkas. Mm. And uh, have made a few tools for my students. Mm-hmm. I'm getting back to going in the shop. I have to say that it was a fair duration of grief that I couldn't go into the shop. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to uh, break apart that ice layer 
and uh, be able to enter it again with joy mm -hmm. instead of remorse. So my son decided that as he was between jobs, he's an IT guy, so the perpetual, well, I'm between jobs right now, and uh, thought that he would make a spinning wheel hmm. and had, had some instruction on the tools in the shop from Alden. And so he came by and worked several, several weeks in the shop and came up with a very decent spinning wheel. And uh, in the process of him working in the shop was a healing moment for me because here was sort of male influence and point of view as well as someone who knew Alden. So it was almost like having an okay from Alden to do what I needed to do, and it was okay. Very odd, very odd, but there. Do your children know how to spin? Yes. Yeah, Jan is teaching, that's my son, He's teaching his two daughters how oh. to spin and weave. Lovely. Yes. Now, they're not really gung-ho on it because, you know, they're 9 and 16. <laughs> but they've seen it around the house, and that's the deal. If you see it at home, you maybe remember it when you need it. There are so many people who, mostly it's knitting and crochet, but so many people who learned just a tiny bit their mother taught them, their aunt taught them, their grandmother taught them, and it didn't stick. But that sort of little kernel was still there when they were ready to pick it up again. Mm -hmm. Or weaving on a cardboard loom. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So do you work with wool very much? Yes. Okay. All the time. <laughs> and, you know, sucker for the great colors and the great slivers that are out there. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. I always come home with one or two. Always. With glad shouts. Do you do very much dyeing? Yes. I guess it's funny that you, I know you so much for particular things that the breadth. It's kind of overwhelming. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I tend to focus on certain parts of what you do. And, and you also, you know, wrote a book, The Practical Spinner's Guide, Cotton, Flax, and Hemp. Correct. So, you know, that's certainly something that was out there as one of your interests. Right. Mm -hmm. Writing. Mm -hmm. That's yes. also another time-consuming craft. Very much so. And <laughs> illustration. And illustration, which I love to do, too. Mm -hmm. So, you know, sometimes things fall unused for a while because it's not the right season. And dyeing is very much like that. I have dyed where I've had to break the ice off the surface of the dye pot. Now that's commitment. <laughs> and, um, well, it's a big pot, too with a burner under it, you know. <laughs> it's not on stovetop level. Uh, I tend to keep the crafts because I use them and want them, and I see them as design tools. And when I'm willing to accept somebody else's work for it, yay, wahoo, I don't have to do it. But if I, I'm thinking, I do a lot of dreaming at night, you know, what would I do? What would I, what's the greatest picture? And I think all of this came from when I was even in junior high. I looked up at the clouds and saw them and thought, that looks just like somebody's shawl draped across the sky. So even then, thinking in terms of 
textile and inspiration. And the illustration was a big area where you and Alden collaborated on the yeah, book. the Alden Amos Big Book of Hand Spinning. Yeah, same one. <laughs> there was such a range in there of funny illustrations with personality and very technical mm-hmm. kinds of pictures. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's fun. It's way fun. Yeah. Yeah, and I get very different. I set up my drawing studio, and that's takes over... I, have a big house, but somehow I don't have enough time or enough place to work. Mm-hmm. So I have to remove all the spinning wheels to one side and set up the drafting studio when I do a lot of illustrations. And what are you working on now? Oh, good question. I have to look in my tea timer because <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing a lot of teaching now, now that COVID has finally opened us up again. Uh, so I prep for classes. Do I have any things in the works? Of course, but they're still embryos right now. So when you say they're still embryos, are you are you sampling? Do you have singles on the wheel? Yes. <laughs> the above. And yeah, fiber I fell in love with, and I'm not quite sure where it can go. Hmm. So. so you do get that. Oh, of course. <laughs> It's not just, I wanted this, I'm going to go find the, the exact right thing. You do fall in love no, with fibers. Well, how can you find the exact thing? You would have to you know, travel the world. It's so it's, choice is also a lot of compromise. But yeah, when something comes out and goes, hello, <laughs> you are going to have fun playing with me. I can't resist. Mm-hmm. And that idea of choice and compromise is what's going to be the focus of your intensive class at SOAR. Mm-hmm. Not just, do I do this or do I do that? But what sort of avenues does that close off if I make a particular choice? How far are you bending stuff? Are you asking unreasonable things from this fiber source? Right. There is a lot of magical thinking, I find, in my own craft. And it's not just that I make sweaters that don't look on me like they do in the model. (laughs) (laughs) You know, if I I set something on my rigid huddle loom and I really want it to work, I want it to be closely enough set. Yeah. And then when it comes off. Not because no amount of the wishing. rigid heddle is rigid, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> no amount of wishing is going, to, is going to tighten up that set. Right. So it becomes a design challenge mm-hmm. of now that I've got it, what can I do with it? And what would it take to get to what it could be? I think that's my question is how far do I go to try to salvage something? Well, you just change its title. You know, this is object. (laughs) I set out for a shawl and now I have cheesecloth. (laughs) Yes, yes. And there you do. You've got it. There you go. (laughs) You can hang it on the wall and call it art. That's kind of snotty of me to say, but... (laughs) It's nice to pet. And actually, when I wove that particular piece, I tried something else that I'd learned from you, which is that I sized the yarn. Yes. It's a really lovely merino yak silk. And I didn't try really hard to rough it up, but I thought, you know, yak fiber tends to be short and I bet it will fibrillate if I don't size it. So I followed a recipe in your article on sizing. Cool. Did it work for you? The sizing worked well. Okay. So why were you disappointed with the shawl? You know, I've only, it's only been since I started working with handwoven that I've learned the true meaning of the word sleazy. 
Uh, <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah. It is a sleazy shawl. Yeah, it, the the warp and weft slip very easily over each other, and it, it comes in bunches. So, so it deforms so much mm-hmm. that it's migrating in the textile. Exactly. Yeah. Got it. Well, there's ways to retrieve it. Mm-hmm. Some of them are very time consuming. I had the thought maybe I should take out the weft and put it back on the loom, and I thought this is crazy. I think you can do it as a handwork piece. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, You can bind the weft to the warp with another thread. Hmm. Or you can stretch it out and then cluster those guys and Mm -hmm. bind it with less thread and less work Hmm. in a pattern. Or you could, I would say, take it in the the bathtub with a lot of suds Mm -hmm. And sit on the edge of the bathtub and with your feet, tromp up and down on it and see if you can get it to fall Mm -hmm. and join up that way. All these ideas that you have, are these all explorations that you've tried yourself? Yeah. It's the way I've, you know, kind of progressed. How do I, what's the problem? How do I solve it? Mm -hmm. Those are potentials. And yeah, sitting on the side of the bathtub is, is something I've done. You can also put it in the washing machine, especially if you have a top loader, and run it through a couple of cycles. You have to stand there over the washing machine, stopping its you know, chug-chug cycle and advancing it to spin dry manually. You can't run it through just a cycle and come back. Or if you do, you'll have a nice hand puppet or something. <laughs> you, sometimes you can just change the name of the object. And yet, let me encourage you, though. Yes. It has taught you a great deal. Yes. And that is worth more than its presence. That so is So if true, it yeah. goes away, mm-hmm. you still have not wasted your time. That is very encouraging to hear from somebody who, you know, makes pieces that you wear and proudly. So. Do you know how many you have never seen? <laughs> Uh, yeah, right. No, they turned into something else. They turned left at the next corner. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the pieces that you, you wrote an article for Spinoff about was a red plaid wool shirt that you wove for, for, for Alden. Alden. Right. And it came out very well, so well that it was worth repairing. Oh, when yeah. You well, of, when you put a level of work into a piece... Mending is an inevitability, because I think life happens. And what happened to this piece was the tail of the front tail, front right tail of the shirt got caught in the door mm-hmm. when it was slammed. And it tore a portion of that area, broke threads the whole bit, which meant that I was going to repair this shirt because it was cer- certainly serviceable. And... um I stabilized the area and then put threads back into the weave structure, which I was very well aware of and was evident, reconstructed the area, both in the warp direction and the weft direction, and mended it invisibly thereby. Did you find it difficult to match the yarn after so many years? You know, I really didn't totally match the yarns. I made a type similar. So it wasn't completely invisible on a professional level, but it was functionally 
good. The trend of mending right now has gone through a sort of a coming out of the shadows. Yes. So mostly what I hear now is visible mending, but you're talking about invisible mending. Right. Being able to follow that pattern and keep the tension. Right. Well, fortunately, the structure of this was a two-two twill, which is very regular. And the yarns were pretty good size. Mm-hmm. I think it was set something like 24 inch bridge. So it wasn't crazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> At least I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I suppose with something like that, if you need to, if you make a misstep, you can probably some of it is taking out. Of course. Yeah. 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 One of my sayings is that good knitters rip. Yeah, they do. <laughs> or never, you never get to see it. Yeah. You know, you try your sample, and if you need that yarn for the end of this cuff that's almost there, you rip the sample. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Being willing to go back and redo something. Right. Gosh, Stephanie, I feel like there are so many things I could ask you about. So tell me about making baskets. I think basket weaving is something that a lot of folks today who are spinners and weavers don't necessarily think of as part of our realm. Yeah. But you make baskets or you have taught basket making as well. Uh, Yeah, I do make baskets as well. I I love them. And mainly because of the fascination of the material. And I don't have the terminology that advanced basket weavers have, but my baskets are like the Cherokee baskets that are, you know, stripped wood or very fine wood. And I've done coiled baskets where you have a core and wrap a flexible material around the core to build the basket. So interlaced is also, is the basket structure or a coiled structure. Done both of those and love them. Why? Because it's so fun to see the wood be flexible Hmm. and pliant. And uh, when you get it done, it's firm and it's useful. And I've always loved baskets. I have (laughs) a lot of baskets Mm -hmm. hanging from the ceiling usually uh, because there's no more room on the shelves. So it's so fun to do them. And when you do them, you also think back on the times when you were making them. Um, My weaving guild was very fortunate in that we had a weaver who made baskets and was generous with her instruction time. So once in the winter, we would go up to her house and make our next basket and go home. And then we all had the same basket, but it was different. So when we came to the next meeting, we'd bring, oh, yours looks like that. Wow, that's a great idea. You know, Mm -hmm. it was really, really wonderful. Basket making is one of the skills, I think crochet is the other one I can think of, where you see these baskets and pieces of crochet all over. You see them in thrift stores and they're treated as disposable. But basketry is something that has to be done by hand. Exactly. There is no machine to make baskets. Every basket that you see. Every fiber basket. Mm. There are wire baskets that are machines. You know, like the big totes. But yeah, yeah. It's all hand work. Yeah, that's just amazing. The material that you make baskets out of is not the same as the wood that you use for a spinning wheel, is it? It can be. Really? But it's just put off in a different dimension. The stock is different. 
Like you can use walnut. Really? You can bend it and you can make a handle and you can make the top rim out of a very narrow and thin piece of walnut. It will become flexible. It has to be clear of knots, whatever your wood is, you know, or what do you call it? God, reaction wood. You don't want any reaction wood. You want it all straight. One of the ways in which I feel very fortunate as a spinner is that somebody, you know, 150 or 200 years ago would have had a lot of difficulty getting the variety of materials that I can get. Mm-hmm. So I could decide to make a basket out of pine needles or something, you know, out of materials that I could gather locally. That's okay. what people did. Yes. You okay. know, their I'm sphere of influence <laughs> was really small years ago. You know, and I think that's why they started making ships at the very get-go, mm-hmm. was we wanted to see what was around the corner there. And the only way we're going to get there is easy, either walk or take a boat. And the ability to practice all different kinds of spinning and textile making is also that sort of a privilege. I yes. Because you, you would have had to specialize because you needed a shirt for yourself and everybody in your family. And so you got really good at making the stuff to make shirts. Well, not only that, you needed to feed yourself and teach your kids and, you know, milk the cow, whatever. Your life was far more varied in in tasks. Mm. So having focused time was a a privilege, a privilege to the people that made money at it or would do it and trade for the things they needed to do for what they needed to have. I don't want to sound glib, but I think that spinning has the potential of feeding parts of you that you're not even aware are there. That this um, food for yourself, you can disguise as I need this or I should do this or, but it's still feeding you. And that's a very good thing. Learning to spin definitely changed my life. And even if what I do tends to be more maybe knitting or weaving, being a spinner is what I am. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It's not what you do, it's who you are. Yeah. Thank you, Anne. Thank you, Stephanie. So good to see you. So good to be here. Thanks to Trainway Silks for sponsoring this episode. Thank you for listening to the Long Thread Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate the show and leave us a comment on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Thanks again.